congregational singing. We've covered the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've covered the sharing of God's word. And today I'm going to be talking about an element of worship that maybe we don't see as often. Um, maybe uh, some of us might be a little uncomfortable with, but I think nevertheless it's an important part of the Christian faith and an important part of our worship of God. And that is uh, utilizing creeds and confessions of faith. So a creed is basically a, a short summary of the major points of doctrine of the faith. There are many creeds out there, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And what I want to do is answer a question. Why creeds? Why use them in worship? These are old fuddy-duddy documents written by men hundreds of years after the Bible. Why do we need to use them? And so to answer that question, I, I want to supply four different answers. First is that creeds are themselves biblical. Um, that is going to be fun to talk about, but I can assure you creeds are biblical. Secondly, creeds are inevitable. Thirdly, creeds help guard the faith. And then finally, creeds help us to worship God. And before I dive into those points, I do want to make one other point, and that is, whether you like creeds or not, you have a creed. The only difference between the creeds we're talking about and maybe the creed you have is one is written down, one is very precise, and one is not written down. One is not subject to other people examining it and looking at it. And the best analogy I can come up with is, well, first, who remembers actually going to a video store and renting a movie? All right. I've gotten to that age where I can say, back in my day for something, so. <laughs> Those video stores before Netflix, kids. Uh, you know, you would go in and, you know, you'd have shelves and, and racks of different movies. And uh, a lot of time, you'd have someone come in and maybe they didn't know the exact movie they were looking for. So they'd go up to the clerk and be like, hey, you know, I'm looking for a movie. They'd be like, oh, you know, how can I help you? And, and maybe they'd say something like this. Well, you know, there's this movie, I think it's like a holiday and just some really bad parents leave their kid at home and then uh, some, some guy from The Godfather comes in and like tries to steal stuff. You know the movie I'm talking about? Oh, oh, you mean, you mean Home Alone. You, you mean uh, the Christmas movie with Joe Pesci from The Godfather. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> so the difference there between the clerk and the somewhat confused person coming in, uh, the confused person knows that they're talking about a certain thing but they can't talk about it with precision. There's confusion. There's uh, a little bit of, of uh, not really knowing exactly what they're referring to. Whereas the store clerk, who presumably knows all about movies, can tell you, oh, you're talking about Home Alone, you're talking about this. The difference is one of listing things out in a precise way. They know the exact thing they're referring to and they're able to describe it versus someone who is able to maybe give a gist, maybe able to, to hint at things, but maybe some of the facts are wrong. Maybe some of the, the things that they're saying don't really match the film uh, that they're trying to describe. And so in a similar way, 
Creeds help us to be precise. They help us to give a description of our faith that is accurate to the God that we worship. And so getting to the God that we worship, we want to first look at his word to actually see what that says about creeds. And so just going to pray for us and uh, we will dive right in. Lord, we thank you so much just for your grace. We thank you that you um, are a God who has made yourself known. You're a God who uh, delights in your people knowing you and loving you, Lord. And I just thank you, um, God, that you share your word with us. You give us language. You give us concepts to understand who you are, um, to know you better, Lord. And I just pray that, um, Lord, your spirit would help us to do that today and that you'd help me to preach your word. And just ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So if you will, if you could turn to 2 Timothy 1.13. Give you all a second for that. Second Timothy 1.13. So a very short verse. Um, just to provide some context here but before I read it. So, First uh, and Second Timothy are uh, two letters that Paul writes to his spiritual son Timothy. He's going to go on to be um, an elder in the church after the time of the apostles, and in particular, this letter, Second Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul is going to write to Timothy. Um, Paul is in prison, and he knows that he's actually going to be executed soon. And so he wants to impress upon Timothy the most important things he can before um, he leaves the earth. And so in that context, the, the letter is just talking about um, instructing Timothy to adhere to the faith, to live a godly life, and to uh, guard the faith against heresy, against error. And so right in the first chapter, after an initial greeting, this is what Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a pretty short sentence, and you, you may read that, and you may just initially say, oh, he's just saying, you know, Timothy, just follow my teachings and, you know, be loving and do all that, and you're great. But I want to draw attention to just the specificity of the words that he uses. You see, Paul doesn't just say to Timothy, you know, remember my teaching, remember, you know, a couple things. Uh, not in general, but he says very specifically, follow the pattern of the words. And that word for pattern uh, in Greek, that word refers to something like an outline, a model, a blueprint, um, something that you, you use as, as, again, as a model to provide you with some type of, of means or skeleton to move forward and proceed with something. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is, don't merely follow my teachings, but also the manner in which they're being presented, the pattern of words that are being used. And you might ask yourself, well, what, what could he be referring to? Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is that today, you know, most of you have a physical Bible in your hands. You have the New Testament. 
Um, at this point in church history, the New Testament wasn't finalized. Some of it was still being written. And so how could uh, the apostles, how could those coming after them make sure that they accurately convey the Christian faith? And so to do that, what they would do and what Paul is speaking to Timothy here about is adhering to a basic outline or presentation of the faith uh, using perhaps specific terminology. And, and one aspect of that terminology that we can even see here is just the word, uh, well, not in this passage, but in this book, is just the word gospel. You know, gospel, euangelion in Greek, that just refers to good news. But as we see in the New Testament, that starts to take on almost a technical meaning. You know, when you, Paul writes to people and he talks to them about the good news, you know, it's not the good news that, you know, Frank and Sidney had a baby. That's good news, but that's not what he's using gospel for. He's referring specifically to the story of the life, death, resurrection, and soon coming return of Jesus Christ. There's a standardizing of terminology. And what we're also going to find in scripture is that there's also a, a somewhat standardizing of the way that you talk about the faith. Um, so you see, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, uh, scholarship over the last 50 years or so has really pinned down that there are a lot of passages in the New Testament that really are kind of prototypical creedal statements, things that may have been repeated in local congregations, things that may have been used for teaching, and so all throughout Paul's letters, we actually see these kind of prototypical statements, and I'll just share a few with you here. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. There's this sort of outline of how he's talking about the gospel story. Um, there's a, a sort of pattern that he's using. Here's another example from his earlier letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. These short little, almost pithy summaries of the gospel story are already being used at the time that the New Testament is being written. So I think I want to, to help maybe disabuse us of the notion that creeds or confessions of faith are something that purely come after the Bible is finished. Rather, creedal, prototypical creedal ideas, confessional statements, they exist in the Bible in embryonic form to start. And so creeds themselves are not simply something that's imposed on the Bible from the outside. The ideas and even the idea of having some type of formulaic summary of the faith comes from scripture itself. Even as far back in the Old Testament, we have what is basically the, the gold standard of Israel's faith, which is in Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, it's called the Shema for the first word in Hebrew, uh, for here. 
And so that verse reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In a polytheistic context, the Israelites are to proclaim and confess that, in fact, their God is one. That is not multiple gods. It's not, uh, you know, one big God, a bunch of little gods. He is just one God. And you see that very statement, that Shema, that um, passage of Scripture, we actually see it then used in the New Testament as something that would be memorized, something that would be utilized to explicate the faith. In Mark 12, uh, one of the Pharisees asks Jesus, what is, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Can you tell me this? And what Jesus does is he recites the Shema to the Pharisee. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to talk about the rest of that. But here, even Jesus himself is using this verse, using this formulaic statement to explicate the faith. And so, again, what I, I want to impress upon us, if perhaps we're skeptical of creeds, skeptical of confessions of faith, is that creeds come from Scripture. They are not just merely, you know, let me just write some random summary. They are, the, the, the embryonic stage of them is present in Scripture itself. And so that is just crucial for us to understand uh, because, you know, we're Bible people. We love the Bible. We love God's word. We want to follow God's word. And it can be uncomfortable to say, well, we should also perhaps utilize this man-written statement. Maybe that irks us a little. Maybe that makes us uncomfortable. But I want to assure you, again, creeds are scriptural. Creedal, confessional material not only comes from scripture as in the ideas come from it, but the very idea of having a pattern of sound words, the very idea of having these summaries of faith comes from scripture itself. So with that being said, if, if we can show that creedal material in some form or fashion comes from scripture itself, that uh, a sort of impetus to use a pattern or outline of sound words is present, why else should we use creeds? Why not just quote the biblical texts I read? If someone wants to ask you what the Christian faith is about, why don't I just quote uh, 1 Timothy 3.16? Why do I need something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? Well, the reason for that, and I want to, to couch this carefully, is Scripture is a text that, at its essence, the basic message is understandable to all. <laughs> um, a person can open up scripture, can read the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and come to saving faith. It doesn't require any special knowledge. It doesn't require a degree. It doesn't require anything like that. God's message of salvation is open to all. Want to establish that. However... As you start diving deeper into maybe certain specifics of the faith, you are going to find that it is going to be really hard to explain certain ideas without developing or using terminology or statements outside of Scripture itself. So just to, to give you an example of this, uh, among some Christians, there is a sort of attitude encapsulated in the statement, no creed but the Bible. And I think at the best, uh, 
you know, interpretation of that. They really just want to be faithful to scripture. They want to only state things that are explicitly found in God's word. They want to be Bible people. That is good. That is great. However, that is a little bit naive for the reasons I just listed. And let me give you an example. So, uh, if I go to a, a no creed but the Bible individual, um, you know, I'll ask them, you know, who, who's God? You know, what, what is God? And, you know, they'll maybe list some scriptures, you know, God is righteous, God is good, which is all good and great. But maybe I, I bring up the Shema and I say, you know, it says here in Deuteronomy that, that God is one, right? Like, absolutely. But then maybe I go to the New Testament and I go to uh, the resurrection appearance of, of Jesus in, in Luke where it says the apostles worshipped him. So, okay, so God is one, and Jesus is also God. But he also seems to distinguish himself from the Father a little bit. So, how is God one, but also two? But then also the Holy Spirit seems to be worshipped as well. So, how do you explain that? And maybe the, the, the person who uh, is faithful, who's, who's orthodox, says, well, you know, God is a trinity. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Trinity is not found in the Bible. That is a term that was created to explain biblical truth, but is not found in the Bible. Okay, you got me. Let me, let me try again. You see, God is, uh, you know, one being in three persons. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Person, yes, is used in the Bible talking about persons, but in this sort of technical sense you're using, also not in the Bible. That is a theological term that gets developed after Scripture. So maybe at this point, the no creed but the Bible person kind of has two options. They can either throw up their hands and say, all right, you got me. We, we have to use some uh, extra biblical terminology. Or they can then try to reinvent the wheel, go all the way back, have these hundreds of years of debate amongst themselves, and maybe come up with similar terminology. Uh, or potentially come up with terminology that is not as precise, not as accurate, not as helpful. And so really, what I'm trying to say and what I think in the instance of this no creed but the Bible person is really the development of these ideas, very much like Thanos, are inevitable. There is <laughs> no way to avoid these things. Once you start trying to explain how God can be one, but also three, you are going to have to develop, you are going to have to use some type of language, some type of, of symbol um, to make sense of that. And so creeds, the benefit of creeds is that all that work has been done for us. Centuries of debate, of articulation, of study of scripture has led our predecessors in the faith to come up with relatively precise, uh, not always easy to understand, but again, precise and useful summaries of the faith, useful ways of talking about these mysteries. And so for us to, to now say, we don't need creeds, we don't need this type of terminology, the reality is, is that our understanding of God, whether we use creeds or not, is probably shaped by that. If you use the term Trinity and don't like creeds, 
It doesn't matter. That's a creedal theological term. You have been shaped by the theological debates, by the creedal definitions and confessional uh, wrangling that has occurred in the past. And I think a great uh, example of this, or, or a way to describe it, comes from the movie The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I watch many types of movies. <laughs> so Devil Wears Prada, uh, main characters are Anne Hathaway, who plays kind of an a unfashionable, somewhat apathetic assistant to Meryl Streep who is the, the editor of Runway Magazine, which is the, the biggest fashion magazine in the world, all, all fictional in this account. And at one point in the, the movie, there's a very famous scene where uh, Meryl Streep's character is looking at two belts that are pretty similar in shade, like they look very similar. Um, and Anne Hathaway's character snickers. She goes, as they're kind of debating the belt. And so Meryl Streep asks, you know, what, what are you laughing at? What's funny? And Anne Hathaway responds, well, you know, the belts kind of look the same to me. Um, I don't really get this stuff. Stuff meaning fashion. And so Meryl Streep uh, says, well, you know, it's very interesting that you, you think that, um, given the, the sweater you're wearing. And uh, as you can see, she's wearing a bluish sweater. Well, now you can't see, you're just looking at me. Anyways, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and she says to her, you know, that blue sweater you're wearing, that's not actually blue, that's cerulean, uh, a shade of blue. And that cerulean color was used in the collection of this fashion designer maybe 10 years ago. Then it was uh, used as a military uniform for some small country. A bunch of other uh, fashion designers decided to start using Cerulean. Finally, it caught on with the department stores and then eventually trickled down to you know, whatever discount bin that Anne Hathaway's character picked it up out of. And she concludes her speech by saying, it's, it's funny that you think that you are somehow above the world of fashion when your very choice of this lumpy cerulean sweater was made for you, was shaped by the fashion industry that you disdain. And in a very similar way for, for us today to eschew creeds, to eschew theological terminology and wrangling, is to be like Anne Hathaway, to wear a cerulean sweater completely oblivious to the fact that our choice of that sweater has been shaped has been uh, contextualized by the, uh, by the debates of the past, by the sincere effort to understand the Bible of those who came before us. And so for that, I, I want to encourage us as we're, we're talking about these creeds to, to be aware that as Christians today following Christ, our thoughts about God, our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of the God we worship, is shaped by these debates in the past. It's shaped by these statements of faith, by these creeds, that maybe we don't use, or maybe we're a little bit hesitant to use, but nevertheless, we are in that. We are fish swimming in the water. We can't escape that water. And it's good that we're in the water, because so much work, so much effort, so much help has uh, gone into creating these statements to developing this language, that it's a good thing. And that's what I want to talk about next is 
why it's a good thing. We know now, hopefully, that creeds, there's an impetus for them from scripture. We know that the development of them, the development of language is inevitable. But how is it a, a positive thing? How can creeds help us in our walk with Christ? And so one of the, the major purposes, and really one of the major purposes creeds were developed, was to help Christians distinguish truth from error. And the value of the creeds is that by having a written out statement that people can examine, they can then see and say, hey, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not uh, the, the true faith. And bearing in mind that really up until the 1500s, 1600s, most people wouldn't own a Bible. They wouldn't be able to, to be Bereans in that sense and acts where they could flip through scripture and maybe fact check what's being said. They had to rely on things like creeds, short summary statements to understand the faith. So that if, say, someone walked into a church and said, well, you know, uh, since we're worshiping the three gods today, we should have, you know, three altars or something. And a person, uh, even a few hundreds years ago, could say, well, wait a minute. The, the Nicene Creed says that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. What do you mean we worship three gods? I'm not so sure about that. They provide a, a helpful fence for us to understand what the boundaries of the faith are. And I want to show you an example in scripture where the use of a proto, uh, prototypical creedal statement would help people, help faithful Israelites in this case, understand error from truth in a day and age, again, where they didn't have access to a, a copy of scripture they could just read. And so in 1 Kings 12, 26 through 29, just to set the context, um, 1 Kings kind of details in the, the first few chapters the story of Solomon and how uh, in his later years he had turned from the faith. He had turned from the Lord. And so the Lord uh, basically uh, promised to divide the kingdom. Uh, he would divide uh, the kingdom between Judah and Israel and most of the tribes of Israel would go to an Israelite named Jeroboam of Nebat. And this didn't happen in Solomon's day, but it did happen during the life of his son, Rehoboam. Um, and God divides the kingdom. And Jeroboam gets most of it. He gets most of the tribes. He gets most of the land. And you think, oh, this is great for Jeroboam. He must be happy. He must be confident the Lord's fulfilled his promise. But Jeroboam actually, he gets cold feet. He gets a little bit nervous um, with what's happening. And you see in 1 Kings 12, 26 through 29, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he set one up in Dan. Now, hopefully, mainly because I emphasized it, you caught the, uh, 
The fact that he didn't say, behold your God, he said, behold your gods. That there are actually now two gods that Jeroboam is identifying as being the, the deities that saved them from slavery in Egypt. And if you are a faithful Israelite at this time, again, you don't have access to scripture all the time. You don't have the ability to, you know, flip through. You still would have memorized, you still would have known the Shema. You would have known that it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Not two, one. And so in the context of being an Israelite in the day where Jeroboam now brings up two gods, oh no, it's actually two that have saved us from slavery in Egypt all those years ago, they would know immediately something is not right. Something is against the faith. And that proto-credal, prototypical statement in Deuteronomy, that would have helped them to do that. That would have helped them to identify the error in Jeroboam's idolatry. And if we fast forward uh, to 300 years after the death of Christ, we find that the very same sort of idea uh, the very same sort of problem is what gave birth to really the first sort of universal creed, the Nicene Creed. You see, in the early 300s, uh, there was an elder by the name of Arius. Uh, he was from Libya, which is in uh, North Africa. And he loved God and he loved Jesus, but he didn't believe that God, that Jesus was God. He believed, based on his reading of things like in Colossians, where it says he's the firstborn of all creation, he believed that Jesus was the best, most stupendous, a greatest thing that God had ever made. But nevertheless, he was a creature. He was not God himself. And so he began to spread this idea all uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire at the time. And for a lot of uh, elders, a lot of, of people in that time, that, that created somewhat of an issue because traditionally the church had worshipped Jesus. Traditionally the church had offered praise to Jesus in the same way that they offered praise to the Father. But to then say that, well, Jesus is actually a creature, they would be committing idolatry. They would be worshipping the creator and a created thing alongside of him. And so how... Are, are they to deal with that? Because Arius made a point in insofar as he, he did point out, well, Jesus is, there is some distinction between him and the Father. We know that they're not 100% the same, but they couldn't go along with the idea, well, you know, he is just a, a creature. The, the Orthodox people couldn't do that. And so in 325, because this had become such a huge problem in the empire, the emperor Constantine called together most of the bishops of the empire. So really a truly universal group of people coming together. And that was the first council of Nicaea. And it's there that they hammered out a lot of these distinctions, hammered out how do we, how do we make sense of the fact that that Jesus and the Father, there's a distinction, yet we worship them both. They are both God. And so the result of that hammering, the result of that uh, debating and wrangling and trying to understand the truth of Scripture 
came in the form of the Nicene Creed, and in particular, uh, this section here as they speak about the Son. And so this is what the Nicene Creed reads. That the Son is begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence of the Father. So in this statement, they very clearly up front say, Christ Jesus is God. He is begotten of the Father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. There is a unity between Father and Son. And yet there's a distinction between the Father and the Son is that the Son is begotten, but by implication the Father is the one who begets or the one who is not begotten. So you have this preservation of both unity and distinction. And it's that very technical in the word essence, um, which just refers to the, basically the substance or fundamental being of what something is. Um, they were able to tell the truths of scripture that Jesus and the Father, and later they'll add the Holy Spirit, they are all one God. They, they share the same fundamental being, and yet they're distinct by their relation to one another. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the spirit, technical term is spirate, but that doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but anyways. <laughs> Don't listen to me, but yeah. <laughs> but you see, they, they develop this technical language. They develop all of this, and this helps to preserve the faith. So after the Nicene Creed is written, Arians still exist, and they're able to say, well, you say that Jesus is like the Father, you say that Jesus is a creature, but we know from the creed, we know from this deep reflection on scripture that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one, and yet they're distinct. And maybe you say to yourself, well, that's, that's great. You know, they solved that problem a couple hundred years ago, or like over a thousand years ago. Um, but we don't really need that. Who, who believes these things anymore? Well, funny you should mention that because there are actually a lot of people who claim to be Christians who believe things very similar to Arius in the 300s. If ever you've had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door and ask to share Jesus with you, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is just some super angel, essentially, that God has created. They almost to a T believe this ancient heresy of Arianism, even though they won't call it that. For Mormons, Jesus is actually a separate God from God the Father. This Holy Spirit is a separate God, and we all have the ability to become gods just like them. And if you go to sort of a, a modernist, progressive church, they'll probably say something that, you know, Jesus was a pretty cool guy, but he was just a guy. He was just a man. And so the usefulness of the creed continues even today, that we can say, I'm sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, modernist churches. Jesus actually is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And he's begotten, not made, but of the same essence of the Father. You can't say he's a creature. You can't say he's just a man. And you can't say that he's just an additional God on top of God the Father. And so the creeds help us to set up the boundary. It helps to guard the faith from error that exists even today. 
And so as we come to our final point, we've shown that, again, that creeds develop from Scripture, that the need for creedal statements and theological terminology is just inevitable, and that it forms a useful purpose and it helps us guard the faith. But we're talking about worship in this series. We're talking about, you know, how we worship God on a Sunday. So what value does a creed have on a Sunday? What value does a creed have to our worship and experience of God? And what I want to offer to you is that creeds, far from just being dry statements of academic theology, they are deeply worshipful, praiseful documents. And the reason for that is because creeds fundamentally proclaim the truth. They proclaim the truth of the God that we worship. When you go ahead and you recite the the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, you are confessing to an unbelieving world that God the Father is the creator of the world. You proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son incarnated who lived, died, and was resurrected so that we might be forgiven of sin. And you proclaim that the Holy Spirit is working and active in the world as we wait for Christ to return. And so in reciting creeds and using them in a worship service, which is what many churches traditionally do, they are proclaiming the truth of God. They are proclaiming the beauty of the gospel to God. And they're also doing it to one another. They are confessing that the same faith that we are proclaiming today in a creed is also the same faith that maybe the Egyptian farmer in the 4th century believed. It's the same faith that a blacksmith in medieval Europe believed. And it's the same faith that our church here, King of Grace, believes. Maybe the church down the street believes. Or maybe the Chinese house church meeting in Beijing that we believe the same thing, that we are part of a community of faith that transcends both time and space, and that this is the God that we worship. This is the God whom we serve. And so as we we close, and if the band could come up, I just want to recap what we covered and then, then apply what we've covered. So again, creeds are biblical, The impetus for a pattern of sound words comes from Scripture itself. Creeds are inevitable because we can't talk about God accurately without the use of extra-biblical language. And that creeds help us to maintain the truth of the faith against error. And then finally, that creeds, again, far from being a, a dry document, They are means of proclaiming the God that we serve and proclaiming to one another that this is what binds us together. And so as we end, I think it would be fitting to do that together, to proclaim the faith, to proclaim who the God we worship is, and to unite ourselves to believers throughout time and space who have believed the same things. And so together, what I'd like to do is to recite the Nicene Creed, which This is the creed we've talked the most about and really is the the gold standard. More Christians will believe this creed than anything else. And so I want to recite that with you and again proclaim the God that we worship. So I'll start us off in three, two, 
One, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Amen.